There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Thinking Sideways is not brought to you by Vegetarian Zombies. Instead, it's brought to you by your local animal shelter. So, you want to get yourself a new furry feather scaly friend? That's not necessarily all three in the same package. Uh, well, you go to your local animal shelter uh, instead of the pet store, and you can have one. They've got lots of them, cats, dogs, and some other things too, like rabbits and probably gerbils and God knows what else. So, uh, And, you know, if you don't want to do that, it's understandable. You should because there's lots of cats and dogs in these homes. But if you don't want to do that but you still want to help out, you know, you can always donate. There's lots of cat rescues and dog rescues out there that really need the money. Really, they do. Uh, and also, you can volunteer. They need volunteers big time. So, yeah, do what you can. And Fido and Fluffy really appreciate it. Hey everybody, and welcome again to another episode of Thinking Sideways. I am Steve, as usual, joined by... Devin. Joe. And once again, we have a mystery! Yay! 70s mystery. A 70s. Uh, it's actually. Although it's actually continuing to present day, though. Well, it is. It is continuing to present day. I was actually going to say it's uh, a first for us as we haven't really done a Vietnam War mystery before. And actually, there's a lot of interesting Vietnam War mysteries out there. There I've are. Got a few on my list. And I don't know why we've avoided it. Probably because Viet- the Vietnam War is a bit of a third rail. You know, it's that, ele- ah. that, that electrified rail for a lot of people, even still today. It's similar to doing, you know, shows about that are circling around 9 11 or yeah. you know, things like that. 
So I'm going to give the caveat in the beginning, as Devin always loves to say, this show is not necessarily about the basis and everything that happened in the war. Uh, it's going to be about, about our one, subjects. One little incident happened. One very specific incident yeah. in the war. Similarly, if you love the Vietnam War, we're not going to do a good job explaining it. No. no. Not about the Vietnam War. So please don't email us telling us that we're bad at history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Because we know. We know. We're really okay. bad at history. It's big. It went on for a long, long time. Re- I, sometimes I read how long it is. I'm like, it was a hell Oh, God. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So let's, let's jump right into the story. Okay. Shall we do that? Yeah. I guess, yeah. All right. So our story uh, starts on maybe on the 27th of January, 1973, which for people who do know their history, especially around Vietnam, will know that that is the day that the Paris Peace Accords were signed to end the war slash conflict slash whatever other thing people called it that was going on in Vietnam. Now, of course, the the Paris Peace Accords were intended to end that conflict. Now, whether it did or not or how that went about, that's a whole other ball of wax. Yeah, there's contention about that. Yeah, there is. But I say that our story might start on that day, but we're not really positive for reasons that will come out later on. Uh Our story mainly, though, starts on the 4th of February, 1973. That is when a U.S. Air Force EC-47, operating under the call sign Baron 52... I like that one. Yeah. Mm. ...took off from Ubon, Thailand at 11 o'clock at night. The plane and crew went about their mission, and, you know, all was well for them. For a while. For a little while, and then they failed to make their required radio contact at 2 a.m., at which point a search and rescue effort was launched, but it would be three days before the wreckage would be found, crashed into the mountainside in the jungles of Laos. The plane, when it was found, was upside down, its wings were shorn off, the rear portion of the plane was pretty destroyed because it had, it'd been on fire. Yeah, yeah, a pretty large fire. Problem, of course, is that at this time in Laos, in that area, this is part of the, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, so the... Even though the hostilities are not supposed to be happening, there's still enemy forces around. All kinds of them. I mean, you're not talking just North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese communists. And there's also the there's, Lao, you know. Yeah, yeah everybody. Yeah. Everybody's around and nobody likes the Americans, which, big mm-hmm. shocker, happens all the time yeah. uh, in situations like this. So search and rescue efforts, they, they launch a, a mission on the 9th of February and four men rappel out of a helicopter to the ground to inspect the craft and their plan is to confirm its identity and then identify and if possible recover the bodies of the crew at the same time they're also tasked with destroying any sensitive equipment that they might find has survived the crash because this particular plane as we'll talk about has some very um some covert radio sniffing technology on it Mm. which was very important to the the u.s military but these four men, they get down there and they are uh, able to, they're only able to spend 40 minutes total at the site. That inter- includes the time rappelling out of and rappelling back up into the helicopter. So they're not on the ground, but for maybe 20 or 30 minutes total. Okay. They're looking around 
and they can get into the cockpit of the plane. Now, did they get in, or they just look in the windows? Because I've heard from some accounts, it looks like they just looked in from they, outside. They were. I, it sounds to me they were able to get a short distance into it based on one of the bodies that they found that would have been partially behind a partition. Uh-huh. So I think they did go in. Now, not very far, you know, probably not farther than the pilot's chair distance into the cab. It was probably kind of an ugly scene. They it was. The, the, the wreck was very unstable, and that will play a part in the way they go about things. But when they get in there, they're able to identify the remains of four individuals. There's Captain George Spitz. He's the pilot. There's Second Lieutenant Severo Prim. He was a co-pilot. Captain Arthur Bollinger was the navigator. And then outside of the plane, they also found the body of First Lieutenant Robert Bernard. Uh, and he was the uh, third Ber- part. Bernhardt. Bernhardt. Thank yeah. you. My bad. What they didn't find, though, and this is important to our story, is that they did not find the other four members of the crew. Which, again, that's what's going on here because this plane had eight people on board. Four in the front who were flying it and four in the rear who were running the radio equipment. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, the... But there wasn't a back of the... Sorry to interrupt. There wasn't a back of the plane anymore, right? Well, there was to a degree. Okay. There was to a degree. It wasn't fully intact because of the fire and the crashes. The tail had been ripped off. Like, this wreck was really, really unstable. It happens a lot in uh, air crashes. Yeah, yeah, especially if they come down very hard. Yeah. So what the mystery here is, of course, is that if they didn't see the, the men, the bodies of the men at the back of the plane, did they actually die in the plane, the, the crash, or were they actually able to bail out before the plane went down? And if so, what then happened to them? Uh, and there, there's a lot of events that happen after the uh, after the plane initially disappears from radio contact that makes some people think that maybe they did get out. And we'll walk through all of that. But let's stop for a second and let's roll back to the very beginning of the story because that's well, the general synopsis of why this is a mystery. Uh, okay. It's a long okay. synopsis. I know. Yeah. I'm a long-winded guy, according to the Internet. going to say, didn't, didn't your mom teach you to be succinct? Yeah. Actually, well, I met your mom. Never mind. I was about to say, do you really want me to answer this question? Because I could go on for a while. <laughs> when Baron 52 lifted off, it was only eight days after the Paris Peace Accords had officially gone into effect. But the U.S. military, being not the most trusting organization out there, didn't actually stop its covert activities. Yeah, I know. What the um, hell? Yeah, keep an eye on things. Yeah, well, and and officially, I'm I have to guess, or unofficially, I'm sure that they're like, well, listen, you know, we need to keep an eye on the uh, the Communist People's Party of Vietnam and and find out what's going on, just in case they're you know gonna pull a fast one on us and break the rules. Well, that's what but, usually happens with ceasefires. So, well, it makes, and it was it makes a lot of sense for context. Well. Remember, it's eight days. I mean, when Baron Fitch two left, it was only eight days. It wasn't as if the this was the first time a ceasefire had been called. Yeah. And yeah. both sides had broken them before. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. things like this might be why those, those things got broken in the past. But well, you do yeah. want to kind of, kind of keep and see if they're actually abiding by it or not before you pull all your troops out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
So Baron 52 itself, though, Baron 52 is a modified C-47 aircraft. And people who listen to this show regularly may actually remember that plane from such great hits as Skytrain. Wait a minute. Skytrain. Skytrain. I did say Skytrain. <laughs> Skytrain. Skytrain. Yeah, yeah. Modified DC-3. Great, great, uh, great planes. Yeah. Except when, except when they crash. Yeah. Well, and for people who Which don't, might who may yeah. not remember that great hit, like Joe said, it's a, it's a DC-3. It's, it's a two-engine prop plane. It was, it usually was, it, or at least in the beginning, was meant to be hauled, hauling cargo, but then they started using it at times to haul troops. This particular plane, though, it is called an EC-47 because the back end of it is crammed full of electronics equipment. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, the simple version of what the E stands for. Yeah. And it had four radio stations that each had an individual man operating said radio to be listening in on whoever it was that they were following from the sky. Yeah, it was actually it was like they, they had a lot of RDF units in it, and so they could actually like since they were cruising along anyway, they could like get a fix on somebody, get a bearing, and then just cruise about a hundred miles down and get another fix, and then triangulate, and that's where the bombers go, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it's like pretty clever. Well, done. well, in in this particular plane, their job was on this particular night was they were supposedly because of. Uh, munitions fire that they had been taking, anti-aircraft fire they have been taking. These planes had started flying at about 10,000 feet, but they would also then go over the border, you know, head to Laos and the border of Vietnam, and they were tracking a um, a convoy of tanks. Mm. So they were listening to them to try and figure out how far they were actually going, and were they just maneuvering around, or were they actually haul and tail heading south to mm. continue the campaign? Sure. That was their particular mission on this particular night. Okay. Now, the plane was, as I said, had eight, was uh, staffed by eight people. So the men in the, or the men in the rear, which they often would get called the rear enders, Mm -hmm. which is just an odd way to put it, but (laughs) it makes sense. They were all part of the 6994 Security Squadron. That's a, just rolls off the tongue. I know. I couldn't, I've never, I don't remember ever seeing military numbers that were more than three digits. I know. I was shocked to see that. You never heard of the Fighting 6694? (laughs) You never heard of those guys? No. I made movies about those guys. Oh, well, I must not watch enough movies. No, clearly. Um, The guys that were in the front of the plane, they were part of the three. 361st Tactical Electronic Warfare Squadron. Oh, yeah, the, the Fighting 361st. I remember them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically... Rolls off the tongue a little more. Okay, but, but basically, yeah. like I said before, the division is four men in the back, radio operators, four men in the front, flying the, the, the plane. Flying and navigating. The f- men who are operating the surveillance equipment on this flight are Sergeant Todd Melton, Sergeant Joseph Matajov, Sergeant Peter Cressman and Sergeant Dale Brandenburg. That particular night, like I said, they were supposed to be following a convoy of tanks uh, that were traveling along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And 
just, I realized when I started doing the research for this, so you guys know I'm going to Vietnam next year, right? right. So I've started reading about Vietnam, mm -hmm. and one of the things I discovered is I, when it comes to geography, this happens all the time on this show, I'm an idiot. Turns out what I know about Vietnam, I learned from Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah, I think we don't learn geography very well in America. No. No, not because at all. Because I had it in my head that the Ho Chi Minh Trail was an actual road. No. And it's, no, no it was like it's this, a, this a miles, area. yeah, this many mile wide swath that people would move through and it jumped the border of not from Vietnam to Laos and eventually into Cambodia. Like I yeah. just always in my head thought it was, you know, like the main interstate or something stupid, yeah. well, no, which makes been, no uh, sense. But yeah, that's what a, I thought. So if for it had been a highway, else, it would have been quite easy to uh, interdict all yeah. that stuff. You know, in retrospect, yeah, I realized been, this. Yeah. But for anybody else who might have been under that misconception, I just wanted to be here to help clear it up so okay. you are, don't fail from the, my foolishness. Yeah. Jeez, guys. Yeah. Get together. <laughs> I totally knew that. I knew all of that. Okay, good. Very oh. good with no, geography. Devin, other Devin places. is a Vietnam vet, you know, so I am. Yeah, she knows this stuff. It's true. No. Yeah. Oh, by the way, it should also be said about the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It's an area of northeast Laos that was extremely rugged. Mm -hmm. In fact, hardly anybody lived there. That's another reason it made a great smuggling sort of thing, because there were no villagers that could inform on your movements or anything like that. It's so rugged, so mountainous, that mm -hmm. you really you couldn't have a usable farm or anything like that up there. So really nobody lived up there. That's why it was full of fighters and guerrillas who were on both sides of the campaign. Because, it, yeah, it was just a great place to hide. Yeah. So the way that communications were set up for Baron 52. Oh, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Because, yeah. Oh, yeah, you know, of course, they're, oh, yeah. they're flying up and down. They're Back following our travel a, log here. Yeah, yeah, they're following this this train of tanks on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But part of their, their protocol was that they had to, on the radio, communicate with command every 30 minutes. And that was done on the hour and the half hour. Makes sense. And they were doing that as normal. At about 1.30 in the morning, they called in and reported to Moonbeam, which was the name of the Air Command and Control Center that they were reporting to. Which was another airplane. Which was another <laughs> airplane. Yeah. That they had been fired upon, but they hadn't been hit. They hmm. then also reported at 1.40 that they again had been fired at, but again had not been hit. And this time when they were fired at, if I remember correctly, it was actually radar-controlled anti-aircraft guns that were shooting at them. So it wasn't mm. some bozo on a gun just firing. Mm. These were, you know, they're very... They're yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're much more accurate, or oh. can be more accurate. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, so at this point... Everything is fine. They're over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They mm. haven't been hit. And then 2 o'clock comes along, and Bear 52 does not make its scheduled call. I wonder what happened. Well, as we know, they well. crashed, Joe. Oh, yeah, okay. okay. Sorry, I forget so fast. Uh, it's okay. It's all right. It's, uh, it's hot in here today. Yeah. It's, it's, it's having that here. effect. I mean, the sweat is dripping off of me, and it's disgusting, it and is. I apologize. It's pretty gross. It is. I'm shiny. Um, so, so very quickly, search and rescue efforts are launched, and the other aircraft that are in the area begin to look for Baron 52. And I'm actually, though they should have, they, I, I'm surprised they didn't see them because if that plane burned as hot as they say it did it should have been a pretty bright spot in the jungle to see yeah. but regardless nobody found Baron 52 on that first night hmm. yeah 
Well, it's a lot of area too. So I mean, I'm sure they they didn't, you know, like it you know, is hundreds of square really, miles. Like, so yeah. that that is a very good point. But it, I don't, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just a little. You strange. You can usually me. see big fires. I mean, again, I'm not. I, you know, since I actually am not. Well, I mean, but familiar like with Vietnam at all. Really rugged and mountainous, so like they're it's in true. a little valley, and there's a little hill or mountain between you it and is, them. You know? Joe, it is. Joe's got also, a good point. It's a steep know. train that goes up it's and down. Yeah, and just, I don't know if it was a clear night or not, you know, because if it was yeah. a clear night, you would expect you could see a column of smoke. You would think. That, but yeah. if it wasn't, if yeah. it was, you know, Yeah, and they went down at 2 a.m., so you wouldn't really see smoke at, at that time in the morning. Well, if it was... If there was a moon out, you probably could. Oh, yeah, I guess. Okay. But anyway, the point of the matter is they didn't see him. But it's weird. Mm-hmm. But it's weird. That maybe not so weird. same night, though, another surveillance craft, which was flying over the South China Sea. So this is directly to the east a uh, couple hundred miles because it's out over open water. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, this plane picks up a radio communication that seemed to point to the fact that the men in the back of the plane, that the crew in the rear, had actually been able to bail out or get out of the plane. But as soon as they hit the ground, almost, they were captured by the Vietnamese. Hmm. Now, these, and, are, these are coded communications. Yeah, and by the way, uh, do you know what time that message was received? I will be honest, I do not, and here is why, Joe, is yeah. that I have seen it reported as anything from... 2.30 in the morning to 5 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock in the morning. I have seen it reported all over. Mm-hmm. And I tr- I found a bunch of you know government reports and documents and stuff like that. And none of them actually said the frickin' time on them. Frustrating, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, not even in military time? No. <laughs> no. Not even in military time. Because that yeah. would be all to decode. me. All they said on there was this stupid 0800 stuff. I don't know. I, don't know I have no idea what time it was. <laughs> no. they. The time is reported all over. I'm I'm willing to go with, you know, let's just say 5 o'clock because that would make sense for enough time to have transpired for men to have bailed out of a plane and then been captured and then somebody making a, ra- a radio communique. The, I mean, for me, the the real question is, right, it's never been reported that it was like midnight. No. <laughs> right? It wasn't before this crash happened. It's no. always, even if it's just even a half hour after, it's always it is after, after yeah. the mm-hmm. crash happened. And that, I think, is the important part, not necessarily so much. That is an extremely I mean, yes, important point to make. It would be great to be able to say, yeah, okay, reasonably there was that amount of time. But realistically, nope. as long as it happened afterwards, we can give credence to it. So a bit. that's a good point. And so, like I said, this is, these are coded communications from the Vietnamese army. So what we've got is we've got American men who are translating a coded message in another language. So, and they're picking it up while in an airplane. So the, the, uh, well, I'm saying this because that means that the communication isn't always the clearest reception. Yeah. And the guy who first met, took this, uh, who heard it, he jotted it down and wrote it down. It was then recorded, and it was also recorded onto tape. That tape was then brought back to some command center, I presume, where it was again listened to. And a second person was able to uh, code it or decode it. And what happens here is we get two different versions of the message. Surprise, surprise. So here's... Translations don't agree. Well, the translations and, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let me give you the, the actual messages. The first version says, 
Group 217 is holding four pilots captive, and the group is requesting orders concerning what to do with them. The second translator comes up with, presently, Group 210, or sometimes you'll see it said Group 210B, but presently, Group 210 has four pirates. They are going, there's a gap, from 44 to 93. That is the the word to, not the number to. So mm-hmm. 44 to 93. Yeah. And and that's where it exists. Now, the problem with this, this log or this radio capture is what the military would do is they would have the second guy go through it and confirm it or correct it. And then they would send the tape back onto another plane to be recorded over again. Mm-hmm. So, so it does not exist anymore. But historically, more credence is given to a second translation in a situation like this than a first translation. Is that correct? You would think so, wouldn't you? You would think so. But I'm just wondering. I'm trying to think of the politically correct way to say this. There's a lot of fighting and debate over which one is correct. Right. Uh, in this particular instance, but I just didn't know if there was like a historic record of, I'm sure this happened all the time, right? That the translation I would imagine. And so I just didn't know if the general consensus was we're going with what the second guy who's not in an airplane in a stressful situation says or the, if... Okay, so officially the Air Force logs go with what the second guy has said. Okay. Because okay. the second guy actually did get a chance to listen to it more than once, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, the first guy is doing it on the fly while exactly. it's being recorded. Yeah. So he's just trying to do it as and quick as possible. he's in an airplane and could get shot at any second. Yes. Yeah. So... Yes, exactly. Okay, so, but that's, I mean, I'm just trying to give historic context to mm-hmm. which one generally would be given more credence. I believe the second one, as we said. So, right. Okay. Now, as we know, the plane it's, uh, wouldn't actually be found until the 7th of February. And then, like we talked about before, that wreckage wouldn't be inspected until two days later, which was the 9th of February. And the search and rescue team who were who repelled out of the Jolly Green Giant said that they couldn't... You're laughing, but that's what they called those big, giant, green helicopters. I know. I love that name. Not a bad name. But uh, they said that they didn't go into the fuselage of the plane because they were worried that it wasn't stable enough. Mm -hmm. They were were also kind of worried about booby traps. That, too. They had also considered uh, putting a rope around it and having the helicopter lift it up to try and flip it over, but they didn't believe that structurally it would stand that and it would probably just crumble and be a waste of time. So they, they they couldn't do a whole lot. And part of the reason that it was so unstable is when Baron 52 went down, it had about five hours of fuel on board. That's a lot of fuel yeah. to burn. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that melts metal. That's sure. part of the problem it is it destroys, it, it melts people. Jet and it melts, melts steel beams. Yes. Uh, it does. Oh, no, so that steel beams light jet fuel on fire. You've got it backwards. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's good to know. Uh, but, but of course, the, the important point here is that because, and this, again, this is the thing that people gravitate to, because they never went into the rear of the plane, they never actually saw any bodies. Now, yeah. just to give you a, a, a little bit of context here, the, men, the bodies of the men that they found in the front, 
they were badly burned. They were really badly burned. But was it Novex? Was that the kind of suit? I can't remember. Their flight suit. Novex or Nomex? Was Nomex, Nomex might have yeah. been it, I think. Thank you. Well, it was, it's flame-retardant flight suits. The flight suits are what kept their bodies from being entirely consumed by flame. Unfortunately, so, they didn't cover everything. No. No, it's just like the black box in the plane. Why don't they just make and the whole plane out of it? We question. have this yeah, conversation every time. Well, here's a question. Yes. Would the Would the... Rear enders have also been wearing flight suits like that. I cannot oh. say. Do you, we don't know. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I, I would think. presume that they would be wearing flight suits as well, mm-hmm. but I would have been not just in regular jumpsuits. But God knows, I don't have the the military history background to be able to answer that. Unfortunately, right. that's fine. Yeah. Just. Um, Oh, so here's the other thing is that the search and rescuers, when they got on the ground, they said that even though the plane had been consumed by fire, when they looked at where the rear jump door was, this is the rear door of the plane. Yeah, the main entrance, where people climbed in and out. Right. And from looking at these doors, and I might be wrong, and if I'm wrong, I apologize, but it appeared to me... It was an opening that was on hinges, but there was also a kick-out portion of that door that there in is. an emergency, you could just punch it out. There is, yeah. yeah. It's actually, actually the, the framed one is actually just kind of, uh, the, it's, it really is just kind of a frame. Yeah. The, the, the paratroop door that you kick out is almost is, as big oh, as okay. the entire door. Well, the point is, even, even in that much heat, a portion of that kick-out door should have been there. They should have seen it, and uh-huh. when they looked at the plane, they didn't see that. Yeah. So this is corroboration from search and rescue that the door is missing, which means maybe the guys weren't there. Or maybe it like critically failed and blew out because the plane was on fire and pressure was weird. Maybe possible yeah, as well. Like People also say, well, those search and rescuers, they didn't find any of the sensitive radio equipment that was in the back of the plane. So what? that's proof that the guys, because keep in mind, these guys' job in the event the plane is going down is to jer- to take the equipment with them and destroy it so the enemy can't get it but key point if they don't go in the back of the plane they can't confirm if that equipment is actually there yeah and that, so that's a claim I, that always frustrates me when i read it well one of the things i wonder about too is um before they left did they like you know like toss a few thermite grenades into the plane to make sure that equipment was totally totally fried uh, I would imagine I that they would not have done that because if if they jumped, the plane was still in the air, which means the men piloting the aircraft. I think no, Joe I, I, means I'm at the, the search and rescue guys. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. oh yeah, no, I, I I don't know. Search. I don't think search and rescue did anything, but they recovered one body or partial remains of one body, and yeah. then they had to boogie. I understand their self-preservation because mm-hmm. I understand they could also have been shot down or things like that. But I would yeah. assume that if it was so important that the enemy not gain access to this proprietary covert you technology, think, you would think they would destroy it. That yeah. if they weren't a hundred percent sure that it was not there or already destroyed, they would have done something. Well, that's what to I would destroy have done. it. Yeah. So I guess for me. Even though we can say like they didn't go into the back of the airplane, it didn't look like the back of the airplane was really intact that much from the really grainy pictures you find yeah. online um, that are, I think, all aerial, right? Yeah, it's one um, aerial photo reused over and over and over and over and over and over and over. But you can hardly tell. But it does look like to me you can kind of see the front of it and then the back of it just looks like it's blown out. And maybe your impression of that was different. But so I I don't know that there was necessarily a back to go 
into. They okay, could have so, done a visual search of. So nope. Well, here's what the search here. rescue guys do: is they get on the ground. One of them, or one or two, post up as guards, mm -hmm. and then only so only two of them are actually searching the plane, and they spend about fifteen plus minutes attempting to extract one of the bodies from the cockpit. Okay. So. I mean, that's not counting. They didn't the, have a lot of time. No, yeah. that's not no. counting the time that they dropped. So they've already expended 15 minutes. It's only two of them. I don't know that they really were able to do too much snooping around. But you're right. That plane was a total disaster. As I said, it's upside down. The wings are shorn off. The tail is broken off. And something like 100 yards behind the wreck. Yeah. So they may have looked at it and went, no, yeah. nothing could have survived that fire. And there's no reason to eat even bother to look for the equipment that's a very valid point i don't know i just react to people saying and they knew that it wasn't there because they don't yeah. actually know yeah i've heard the no. story that they say that the uh, the parachutes were gone and the equipment was gone and, mm -hmm. uh, but in the official thing i don't i don't think it's said one way or the other uh -uh. i think i'm willing to say it was functionally gone yeah i mean oh yeah <laughs> it may not have physically not been there but it may it probably just they still, yeah. they still should have lobbed some thermite grenades in there. I would agree with that. Uh, That's I why we're going to be a good zombie apocalypse team. But yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just saying, you know, to me, there, I cannot imagine if it was as sensitive as it seems like it was that their main directive would have been find the bodies that rather their main objective would have been, hey, make sure that. Well, no, that, that's what I was Can't saying be before. Is that they they had it was a, it was multiple responsibilities. Was re recover the equipment if possible, or destroy it. Recover and identify the bodies and if possible. Sure. Recover them and right. make sure but, there's nobody alive. Right, you know, right, of course, and look for survivors. Thing. So, right. yeah. but th this was they were doing all of this at the totally. same time. Yes. Totally, yeah. Okay, so. They go, they look, they recover one set of remains, and initially the U.S. Air Force lists the four men that are in the rear of the plane as missing in action. And then several days later, and by the way, this is after they've contacted the families and said, listen, this is what happens to your son. We believe they're missing in action. We don't have anything to lead us to believe anything different. And the, I've read the requirements from the U.S. Air Force that says they actually err on the side of missing in action rather than killed in action unless they absolutely positively can confirm somebody well, saw yeah, it. You don't want to list somebody as dead that isn't. Right. The yeah. paperwork alone to get somebody back alive. But, so but. so the, these guys come out, the, the Air Force says, this is what's going on. And then suddenly, eight days later, I think it's eight days after, which is weird because it's the same number of days. Anyway, uh, eight days later, they come out and they say, oh, yeah, no, no, those those four men, they were definitely killed in action. They uh -huh. were definitely killed when that plane went down. Hmm. And that leaves a funny taste in a lot of people's mouths because mm, sure. they were very, the word I've seen it described as hasty. They were very hasty in that decision. And things we're going to talk about in the theory section may explain why they felt that or people feel that that was such a hasty decision. So we are now done with the story. So as always, we need to go into theories. Oh, boy. So let's talk about the first theory. That first theory is that 
per the United States Air Force and all of its reporting, they told the truth. They told the truth, and the men yeah. did actually die in the crash. <laughs> Why would Which that is, happen? Yeah, not surprising, I guess. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and let's let's run through it because I mean, the the official report says all eight of them died in the crash, and they say that there are several things that confirm this. There's first off is the fact that there was no radio contact from the crew whatsoever, and they would have expected that. And mm-hmm. let me clarify yeah. what they're talking about here, because first, these men are so well trained that it is expected that as the plane is descending, you know, losing flight, Thousand. falling out of the sky, losing altitude, losing altitude. There's yeah. the word I was looking I like for. Losing flight. <laughs> losing I think flight. I'm going to use that yeah. from now on. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> It's descending. If it were capable to, capable of having made contact or sent out a, a you know a, a broadcast of some kind, whether it be from the pilot or the men in the back of the plane, that should have happened automatically. Yeah, somebody, somebody should have, have said, said "Mayday, something. mayday, mayday, we're going down." Uh, it makes a lot of sense because you want them to know you're going down so they can come look for you right now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, it and, also, I mean, also just to, you know, drive home a point, they, they radioed in every time they almost got hit. Mm-hmm. Right. And I they mean, checked in every half hour. They too. checked in every half yeah. hour, but more than that, at, you know, at 30, they said, Oh, just got missed at 40 before they had to check in again. Yeah, they, they said, said got just got missed again. And then silence. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know. If somebody's they, shooting at them, they're they going to... If they're, if they're yeah. radioing to say, somebody's shooting at us and missing us, they're going to radio and say, oh, ha, they're they hit us this hitting time. Us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Now, the, uh, people do say, well, of course, you know, well, something happened and the engines died, but of course the plane had batteries on it, so oh, the, yeah. the radios would have worked, even if both engines had literally fallen off of the plane, it still would have continued to have electricity to oh, be yeah. able to send a radio signal of some kind. Yep. The only thing I can think of here is that they may have tried to be sending radio signals, but I'm guessing that whatever hit them probably destroyed their antenna array. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't I, I don't know enough if there is more, if there was a backup antenna, but... It seems like if it was literally meant to be picking up radio signals, they broadca- would have some... But, but I don't know that they're necessarily broadcasting with the same equipment that they are listening with. That's I don't know, true, Devin, and I don't want to run down they, that alley. They because... did have a lot of different radio gear and a lot of antennas on those planes. Right. I mean, so a it's, lot. And, so and, it's, and... it's hard to say. And it's like Amelia Earhart. You know, you're going to have at least... Uh, well, not like Amelia Earhart. She had like one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're gonna have you're gonna want to have at least two, maybe three radios for communications purposes mm-hmm. with, with base, you know, and uh, yeah, absolutely, those, yeah. yeah. So the the second kind of radio contact that was expected to be heard from these guys, if indeed they bailed out, was it should have been radio contact that was coming from what is known as air crew survival radios, and that is literally the hit a button and it just sends out an automated distress signal. Um, a little thing goes, help me. Help you, me. Something like, yeah. I mean, you know what it's, have you ever seen that Owen Wilson movie behind enemy lines? And he's got yeah. the, the funny little radio yeah. find me box. It's an early, early version of what they show in that movie. And now I'm not telling you to go see that movie. It's not, not a great movie. I'm not I just thought see, about uh, it. I'm not uh, Owen Williams doing a non-comedy. What are we talking about here? What the hell? It happened. I'm sure it was some bad contract negotiation by his agent. I don't know, but he did it. It will interest you all to know they have those in all of the inflatable life 
both snapped. Very in. similar, yeah. 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 And most, same, most same concept. personal flotation devices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're a little handheld about the size of a walkie-talkie, yeah. and you just flip the switch. You mm-hmm. don't have to do anything complicated, and they go off. And if these guys had bailed out, according to the Air Force, they should have been broadcasting with these things right away. You assume they would, because it'd be the way they'd be found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we would have an incentive there, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, other things that the Air Force points out, uh, they say the condition of the aircraft, because like I said, as we've talked about a couple of times, it was upside down, and they say they're pretty sure that that plane came in nose first. The lack, the lack of any kind of skid marks through the jungle yeah, or no anything. broken treetops or anything like nothing that. Nothing like that. Yeah. It appears that it fell nose first vertically and hit and boom, maybe, and then uh, flopped over on its back. Yeah, it could be like a maybe a wing fell off or something like that, and it went into a tailspin. Well, yeah the, yeah, the Air Force thinks that it went into a tailspin, and that's actually a really important thing because if the plane is in a tailspin, from what I understand, it is would be all but impossible for those guys in the rear of the plane to be able to punch out the jump door mm-hmm. and then be able to jump out of that plane and clear it like they they, yeah. pro- they wouldn't they shouldn't have been able to get out because either it's blowing you know it's spinning into the door uh, that would you know then create the air pressure you can't get away from yeah. and I don't know that you'd want to jump it was spinning the other direction because then that's just going to throw you right into the propellers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this all uh, sounds like re- like logical was, reason. Um, I guess, you know, for me, I would presume to just kind of address the fact that they, you know, took eight days to go from MIA to killed in action. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, what you were saying is true, that the Air Force is very tentative to just say military in, in general. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, people should be pretty tentative to just say oh, they're dead, but it Really, what it sounds like happened to me is, you know, they found that wreckage and they said, okay, there's a possibility that maybe, you know, without having assessed anything, there's a possibility that maybe they bailed out. We did not conclusively find their bodies. So, okay. And they went back and assessed it and, you know, came to this story where what the forensic evidence or whatever, you know, said and realized really there's no plausible possibility that these men survived this crash and then moved them. Eight days is a reasonable amount of time to spend investigating something like this, I think. Sure. I don't know that they actually investigated it for eight days, though, is the point here, Devin. And that's what people get so peeved off about, is that it wasn't as if for eight days a U.S. Air Force group spent nothing but time looking at the data and saying, okay, what exactly happened and giving a determination. It doesn't take eight days to look at this stuff. Right, but can I clarify that it would be even more suspicious to a lot of people if like a day later they were like well just kidding killed in action you know what i mean like it they they had to get all of the footage they had to take statements they had to probably like have a couple of experts they had to really take the time to compile all of the evidence it's not that i'm saying they're sitting there in a room for eight days blah blah, blah. probably not even compiling evidence for eight days realistically but that the process could have reasonably taken eight days and that they could have said yep but again, what I was saying earlier is that their, their, their manuals actually point out if you cannot confirm nobody laid eyes on what happened on the body, you do not change them from, 
from MIA to KIA. That's fair. And that's, mm. what, that's really what, what sticks in the craw of all of these families of these yeah. four men. And for, I mean, this was in 1973. For five years, these families just lived with the understanding that their sons had died in the crash when the plane went down. Yeah. Until in 1978, somebody from the U.S. Air Force called them up to tell them that there was a possibility that the men had actually gotten out and been captured by the enemy, which is something we talked about in the beginning. Sure. So let's move into theory number two, which is they actually bailed out. And were captured. And were captured. Exactly. What happens? What's going on with this? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on in it. The basics of it are that Melton, Matajov, Kressman, and Brandenburg, like we said before, they they parachuted out and then were immediately captured by the People's Army of Vietnam. And then those crewmen would have been considered very valuable assets, not only to the Vietnamese, but to the good buddies of the Vietnamese, the Soviet Union. Sure, they would have turned them over to them, and they would have taken them back to the Moscow or wherever. And, yeah, know, they would have. They would have gotten them. them out of the country because yeah. they're radio men, so they know U.S. Uh, US Air Force codes and procedures. They have a lot of knowledge in them that. Well, you don't... can see the the Soviets really, really wanting to have the opportunity to get their hands on. So that's that's kind of the the general breakdown of the theory in the beginning, and then we'll get into our our you know thickets of bits here. So we're going to talk about that radio communication again. Uh, it said, and I'll I'll give it to you again. It says Group Two Seventeen is holding four pilots captive, and the group is requesting orders concerning what to do with them. And then the second version is presently Group 210 has four pirates. They are going from 44 to 93. The things that people point out that are really interesting about that is that apparently the Vietnamese interchangeably use the words pilot and pirate all the time for guys flying planes. They consider them to be pirates, I guess, well, is the reasoning. Well, I've heard also that they, um, and, and this wasn't the Vietnamese. I thought it was the, like the, the Laotians that had captured these guys. They were going to turn them over to the Vietnamese. I was always under the Laos. impression that it was the Vietnamese that had done it because uh-huh. it was on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and therefore the Vietnamese army was flowing through there. Uh, it could have been. I, don't, I, I was thinking, well, we, we can agree to yeah, disagree on I, that. Yeah, but, I just but, don't know. But I had heard that they used nomenclature, like the, the word pirate could apply to like bandits um, and also just members of the opposition. Like there were anti-communist guerrillas operating mm-hmm. in the area too. And I, apparently I heard they referred to them as pirates also. Yeah, so it was, a, so, it, was oh. it was basically a word to describe the enemy. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. just a particular group. And so if pilot and pirate are mistranslated or misdecoded, that could lead to confusion, which, again, it's obviously led up to a whole bunch in here. Sure. Um, let's see. We had at one point in the initial reading, it was group 217. In the second reading, it was group 210. People say that the difference phonetically in uh, the language between 210 and 217 isn't isn't much so it could easily have been mistranslated so there's something that people poke holes into it with but really what people always want to know about is okay so what's up with the 44 to 93 and that has been interpreted quite a lot to mean 
kilometer markers along some kind of route along a road whether it be an east west or north south road people are saying well this means that what they're saying is that they were taking them from marker four kilometer marker 44 to kilometer marker 93 mm-hmm. but we don't know where that goes well you don't that's know a, that's a that's a hard a hard those, one uh, you know those, those also could have been just like code numbers that meant like you know 44 meant alive mm-hmm. 93 meant dead it could have been that then. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it could have been a lot of different things. I mean, it may have been coded to the degree that whoever decoded it didn't decode it correctly. They may not have had the entire key. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah. have no idea. I had heard that some of these, at least one of these messages, was uh, actually decoded by a guy who was at Laotian was not his real, his primary language. Mm-hmm. In other words, he wasn't that strong in Laotian. Yeah. He was a linguist, but I don't think it was his, his big language. And so and so a lot of weight has been placed upon this guy's interpretation. Is he the second is he the one who did the second interpretation? Uh, yeah. And I can I had his name I think written it was down. Melton or something like that. Yeah, and I, I can't I remember his name. I don't have now. it written anymore, but he he is apparently the one that raised the stink and got the families involved in seventy eight. So mm-hmm. can you I'm sorry, can you just clarify for me here? Yeah. This transmission was picked up by a plane pretty far away. Right yeah, over, the, over the sea, sea. So, yeah. So a couple hundred miles, maybe. Uh, yeah, let's least. say sure. Okay. Big question: What's how do we know this is even about this thing? We don't. Okay. And that's a very good point to raise. The from the U.S. Air Force, they say that the person who was monitoring the frequency that this original message came through on believed that all of the communication that he was listening to was actually coming out of um, Vin City, which is 250 miles away, 400 kilometers from Mm. the site, from where Baron 52 went down. Yeah. People say, well, that's an awfully long ways away to be related. I will use a grain of salt here and say that doesn't really bother me so much because it could have been somebody calling up the chain of command who was then calling up the chain of command who was then calling up the chain of command. A, a game of telephone sure. to get the message along. Mm. I'm I'm just saying that I could see that. I'm not saying that's a serious contention, but that is one of the problems with it, that it's, it's not from it, that very very close range to the crash site okay. but beyond uh beyond that the uh there were other reasons that uh, people believe they got out of the plane and they were captured right there are yeah which parts are you talking about here because i'm looking through my list yeah, yeah. <laughs> well no i mean uh i'm just talking about the door being missing and the parachutes being gone and all mm-hmm. that stuff yeah and uh are, are we are we through the debunking part yet so do we want to go there yet no no because there's a couple of things here that i find interesting that might explain why some of this stuff is going on Mm. so one of the reasons that okay so if these guys get out and they are immediately captured remember that this is just about the time that the paris peace accords have gone into effect and one of the uh, oh god it's not a stipulation but one of the articles of the accords is that Prisoners of war will be returned and the bodies of the dead shall be repatriated. You shall send them home. Both sides should be doing this. Okay. So this is, this is what everybody wants to have happen. So if that's the case and suddenly the U S 
screws the pooch and drops a plane in the jungle proving that it's doing what it's not supposed to do you want to allow that to jeopardize the return of all those other guys in other words are you willing to forfeit these four for the other hundreds if yeah. not thousands but and uh, and, and just to, to be clear this is not you talking this is what the the people the, the theory the says yeah say yeah I, yeah, I mean, obviously, we're not saying it's that it's the trolley conundrum, right? Do you sacrifice the you're, you've got the one person on the tracks that you care about and the twenty people on the trolley? On the, no, on the tra- on the other track, and do you like throw the switch? I don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's a good question, especially just, on the yeah. possibility, right? It's not even mm-hmm. it's not even a we know for sure they're alive. It's a we think they might be alive. So, are we going to sacrifice? Are we going to get caught? doing this thing or or are we going to get our you know thousands of pow's back like which is yeah, it wasn't thousands it was kind of hundreds but, but yeah, i mean still. you know what i'm saying I, I know what you're saying yeah though the um I, you know i don't think this thing would really would have jeopardized that that's one problem i have with this theory is that oh yeah no there's what, a lot of problems what the, what the u.s was doing over laos with, with recon and all that stuff was not actually was actually wrong and really in violation of the accords anyway i mean well i like, think they were supposed to be stopping all missions and this is a to me when i read this it's a pretty blatant violation of stop what you're doing. Just we're all things. I mean, like everybody is out, quit doing it, send everybody home. Know, and here's just... all these guys at this airbase that are still flying as if nothing happened. It was just mm. eight guys going for a plane ride. I don't yeah, know. What the well, but this yeah, was, this was one yeah. of many, many, many planes that the U S had in the air, which is why, you know, not that you, not that they know of. It's just the one. Well, but they do because Man, I should be a communication because of the fact else. that oh, yeah. I mean, think about this. So <laughs> the the Vietnamese or the the Laotians they're shooting at these airplanes that they see overhead because they're, they, they're not supposed to be there, and they know they can't get in trouble for shooting one down because it's not supposed to be there in the first place. UFOs. So you're going to deny it, and that is why people also say that because the government knew that they shouldn't have had that plane in the air, they so. Uh, hurriedly changed the status from MIA to KIA mm-hmm. because they realized that they got their hand caught in the cookie jar. Well, and you, know, you, you, you know, like you said, it's that it's that same conundrum. This is the problem I have with the, that explanation, though, is that uh, is that you know the U.S. government didn't really get caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Just there's a ceasefire, which means you stop shooting at each other. It doesn't Listen, mean you, it doesn't mean that you stop paying attention to what the other side is doing. I'm I'm you, you I'm not gonna, I'm stuff, not going to de- debate it. I felt I feel personally I mean, that I think it was in violation, but that's my personal thought. I, I and I think that others may have felt that way. According to this theory, that's somebody mm-hmm. else in in command yeah, no, was worried about the same thing. Yeah, I, mean, I, I yeah, but I think these people are wrong, but hey, you know. But so uh, Let's keep moving forward so we don't beat a dead horse. Oh, yeah. Let's not do that. Let's move into what I don't even know how to classify this next bit because it's, it's kind of theory related. And it's I, I called it modern hinkiness because oh, no, I think wait. that's a great theory. Okay. Okay. So it's modern hinkiness. So hinkiness. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So here's the thing. There's a piece of information that I haven't shared with our listeners that <gasps> I know you two know. You really? scoundrel. I know. <laughs> And that is that we went back to the crash site of Baron 52 
It just took us 20 years to get there. Yeah, 93. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So, well, in, uh, actually, they went in 92, and the commission report came out in 93. It took them like 18 months, like, apparently, to get it all figured out. But uh, a Senate committee sent investigators to the site, and when they got to that site, they uncovered 31 bone fragments and a tooth fragment, as well as zippers and other bits of flight gear. Uh, there was four corroded revolvers. You know, the wood's gone. The metal is all corroded up. You can see mm -hmm. the photos of these things online. They also found the D-rings from eight parachutes. So they say that's evidence that the men couldn't have gotten out. Okay. But... To be fair, yeah. that just means they probably didn't successfully make it to the ground. It doesn't mean they didn't jump no. out of the plane. These were in the crash site. No, I, yeah. but I'm just saying, like, it just means they didn't take parachutes with them. It doesn't mean they didn't oh, jump out of the plane. Oh, oh. Yeah, that's a good point. They could have just decided to go see if they could fly on their own. Yeah, Although maybe. actually, the, uh, the parachutes are stored, or they were stored... In the aft of the plane, right across from the, from the entrance door, and the, the entrance or exit, depending on your point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were in a bin, and uh, there were places in the bin for a dozen shoots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was so, going to say, also, it seems like they have extra. Four, yeah, four, you know, 12 minus 4 is 8, after mm -hmm. all. Right. Well, yeah. but that's mm -hmm. the thing, is that if, if indeed there's only 8 shoots, where's the D-rings for the extras? That's... That's well, the question. Well, that, yeah, that, that, yeah. And so, but, but I mean, to some people, the presence of eight rings or D rings from eight parachutes proved that they couldn't have jumped. I mean, to other people, it, it doesn't prove that at all, right? I mean, am I missing Be something there? No, no, yeah. you're not. Because yeah. people say they never went up with just the minimum number. They always had extras just for, yeah, know, and, just in case. Although you don't know. I mean, that, uh, you know, that they might not have had like, you know, that a full thing either. I don't know. I mean. They might have only had 10 in there. I don't know. Yeah, well, but but even if it was only 10... Or 8. That means they're still short, too. I mean, they could have just had the 8. Okay. But, yeah. But, so they get to the site. They find these D-rings to prove that there was 8 parachutes on board the plane when it went down. There's some other weird bits of hankiness here, and that would be that one of the investigators, when he walked onto the site... He said he literally looked down and he found a dog tag sitting on the ground, exposed to the elements, right in front of him, and that belonged to Joe Matajov. The thing is, is that it was in pristine condition. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it shouldn't have been. It had been there for 20 years. It should have suffered some kind of ill effects of the weather. Did, yeah. I don't know. I guess there's some, I guess for me, you know, he could be saying like, and it was in pretty dang good condition for... Have you seen the photo of it? No. Okay. It, was it actually pristine? Yeah, it was in great condition. Okay. I mean, I've seen dog tags that guys wore for years, yeah. you know, after combat missions. Yeah. You know, guys do that. They yeah, just yeah. always wear their dog tags. Yeah. And they were dirty and scarred and beat up, and they looked worse than the ones I saw in this photo. Well, it didn't see very much combat. Maybe somebody's so, playing a practical joke on these guys. Well, that's actually a really good point, because yeah. it is not an unknown thing for people to see or figure out that families of men who are MIA are coming to the area and fabricate dog tags yeah. mm -hmm. to sell to them. So that's not an uncommon thing. But the other not so on the level bit here is supposedly these guys were, uh, they were flying a sanitized mission, meaning that they shouldn't mm -hmm. have had their dog tags on and they shouldn't have had any kind of recognizable insignias on their flight suits. I have a question. Yeah. That's why I'm raising Wah. my hand. Yeah. Uh, then how did they identify the four 
pilots? How did they know that was who they were? Probably their positions in the plane. I believe it was the positions in the plane. Okay. I'm believing it. But so that is the way they identified them. Based on their stations, yes. So for all we know, the rear endmen could have been taking those positions. Possibly. Realistically. I mean, realistically, Just to be a total slam, They slam into the ground, and and the four in the front are ejected right out the glass windshields Uh in the front. And the the other four are just like, Ejected right into the the seat. I like that theory. That's a good one. No, but I just mean, you know, for all we know, the people who bailed out were the pilots. Mm. Right? I mean, Unlikely. if, if uh, I, I agree, I'm just. Yeah. She's playing devil's advocate, yeah, and yeah. I get it. Yeah. And yes. Okay. I, I can just see, you know, they get hit. They say, hey, you guys, come forward and take the controls. Uh, we, we've all got to go to the bathroom. We'll be right back. Bathroom's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. out this door. Sorry. Yeah. So, <laughs> this isn't the bathroom. Whoa! Um, yeah, no, April but Fool. it's it's yeah. weird that if they were supposed to be flying a sanitized mission, that this dog tag was there. Agreed. Oh, yeah. So that's that's weird. The other thing that's weird is that the bone fragments that were all recovered, they couldn't really identify them to anyone because I kid you not, they were literally fragments. They I couldn't mean, even prove that they were human. You would kind of expect that. You would mm-hmm. after 20 years and in that situation, yeah. but they said that they couldn't, they, they didn't, no, it's not that they said they couldn't, they said they didn't want to run DNA analysis at the time. This is 93, so of course technology has made leaps and bounds since then, but they didn't run DNA on them, so they couldn't confirm who or what it was. The other weird thing is that I mentioned that they found a tooth or a partial molar on site. Well, that molar, they matched it up to Peter Tressman. Here's the odd thing is that when the, the, the U S air force came to Peter Cressman's family and said, Hey, this is, this is Peter's molar. And we have these x-rays of his teeth to prove it. They showed them x-rays of a full set of teeth on the top and a full set of teeth on the bottom. The problem is Peter Cressman didn't have all of his teeth. Mm. He was mm. missing teeth. He had to wear a partial. So Whose X-ray is that that well, they use to match the tooth to? Are they sure that? Well, it could have been a, it could have been a mistake or a fraud. Or uh, are they sure it wasn't just an earlier X-ray before he got his partial? I believe that before he went in to service, he already had that. But I mean, and if the partial was in his mouth when they X-rayed him, it would be very obvious. Okay, because so the a partial has metal. The X-ray was not from. From previously, Previous. they didn't they didn't like contact family dentist back home. It, and get I, everything them. that I have read says that that was not the case. That it was the military had those X rays. It was their mm. you know X rays he took in the military. But this is so. Here's the thing though, and this is I know this infuriates the families, but the the all of the armed forces. Okay, I'm not just going to point at the air force here, but all of the armed forces over the years have seriously dropped the ball when it came to identifying uh, recovered remains of soldiers killed in action. There are times where they have sent parts to a family and then realized that, wait, they sent, I'm just going to make up names here, okay? They they sent Bob's remains in place of Don's remains. But Don's remains are actually in 
Tim's grave, and they don't actually know where Don or the the first guy's remains are. But the third guy's grave is actually filled with somebody else, and it's it's this it's, weird. Uh, and there's oh, no yeah. easy way to fix it because what do you do? Well, you go amazing. to the family and say we screwed up. We need to exhume your loved one, and you have found closure. And now, sorry, we got to take it away because we were wrong. No, you don't. You don't do I would, that. I would think that they would just, you know, like there's been cases like that. I would just quietly move the bones and not tell the family myself. <laughs> if I in the military. But it just—it does go to show you a couple of things. Number one, they do screw up a lot. But, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, in, in circumstances like that, I could see where you could do that. But they also still seem to actually still be working on this. I mean, they actually are devoting a lot of resources to trying to straighten everything out, identify everybody to, to the best that they can. It they are trying, no. But they're screwing up. I, yeah, I well, and I was going to say, if you, if you listen to the families, then they say, no, they're not trying, and they're just, they're trying to cover it all up. I mean, this is, this is all a matter of perspective. And yes. I, I get that, because if, if you, you know, these families came into this situation expecting things to be one way and to be given all of the information and they feel like they've been jerked around for decades mm. that's bound to build up a lot of resentment yeah so well, you can yeah. see where all these families get together i mean i read an article somewhere and somebody said when you read one of these you think well the family is crazy and nothing is going on and then when you talk to five or ten families and they all tell you the same story you start to wonder what actually is going on? Is there some kind of something in the background, some plan that we don't know about? And it's a game that somebody else is playing. We just don't know the rules to. I mean, it's it, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Well, I think there was a little bit of um, irresponsibility on, on the parts of some people, though. Like, you know, a lot of people really kept this story alive and kept the families excited and interested in the whole thing mm -hmm. when you know in my opinion there's there's not a single shred of evidence that that they survived the plane crash i would agree with that there's not not one shred of evidence i, I not a single one uh, i would say that the missing jump door is to me a shred of evidence no nah, it's not to me it is but it's that, missing wings <laughs> no no here's the wings are nearby here's here's the real reason the door was probably gone is that uh Actually, I mean, it's very possible that it blew out in mid-flight when they were hit. I get that, Joe. No, actually, the uh, the, the jump door, the parador, uh, the par uh, the paratroop door, whatever they call it. Mm -hmm. Actually, in Southeast Asia, on those on those planes, the crews removed those all the time, and they flew without them all the time because it was so hot there. That was one way to keep it kind of keep it cool in the plane. But these guys are flying at night. They're flying so at that's night. That's not February. an issue. But and the other thing about these planes, well, it, it may or may not be an issue. I mean, it, it, it may well be that that particular bird, they pulled that door off months before or even a year or two before, and it, nobody even knew where the damn door was anymore, so they couldn't even put it back. They typically flew without those doors in place. See, and I've read, I've read a lot of stuff from airmen who said that the doors were there, but they always left them unlocked. Yeah. So they could get out faster. Yeah, but no, which, the, uh, but, 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 to me, it's, but to me, there's there's absolutely no reason to put a lot of any weight whatsoever on that door being missing. The the the, the search and rescue team reported that the, par that the parachutes were gone. Well, of course, but, but they 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 couldn't report those were gone because they didn't go into the plane. No, no, you can see, you can see into the plane by looking through the door because the bin that holds the parachute is right across from the door in the in the fuselage of the plane. Which door? And every every account that I have read. The, the rear door, the, the entry exit door, the oh. main entry exit door. They're, the, they're right across. The jump door? Yeah, the jump door. Okay. They're right across from that. Every, 
every account that I have read of this, the search and rescue team reported that the door was missing. They also reported that the that parachutes were missing. And, but the thing about it is, and so that's considered to be a piece of evidence to support the idea that they jumped out of the plane. See, and nothing that I've I've really seen has ever given any good indication that they were in that portion of the plane to be able to identify that. My point is, they said they didn't go into the rear of the plane, so yeah. therefore, it's just not 100% for certain, which mm-hmm. is why I'm not willing to just say no. Mm-hmm. They didn't see him, but they didn't, you know, crawl through the body of the plane. That's that's where I'm getting at here, and that's no. why I'm not completely opposed to it. Yeah, no, and so, so, but my understanding was, or at least the way it's been written, and in, in the search and rescue team reported that the parachutes were missing; they were gone. There is some they, they reporting that. that says that, uh, but know. there's also reporting that said that's what I said earlier. Yeah. Is that there's also, when you read it, there's stuff that says that they never went back there. So that's mm-hmm. why I don't completely believe it. It's, we see this all the time where stories are inflated and sentences and yeah. actions are added to it. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, but, yeah, but this is used at least by some people in this little conspiracy as a theory, as evidence. The parachutes were missing. Mm-hmm. You know, they were reported as being missing. Whether they actually were or not is beside the point. I mean, that's what these people are all saying. They're saying the parachutes were gone. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they must have jumped. Mm-hmm. Right. Point is, of course the parachutes were gone. They were just in a bin. I mean, they just fell out. And, you know, were, so of course they were not. Of course, so Yeah, yeah. They, they could have fallen out. They could yeah. have been incinerated in the yeah. fire. I'm, so, yeah, I'm not so. saying that the, the the parachutes couldn't come out. All I'm, I'm just... Again, as well, I said before, not, not, I, know you're I not just don't feel that. like anybody laid eyes on them. Can mm-hmm. I propose a new theory? Sure. Yeah, uh, it's not some vast conspiracy. It's well, just general incompetence. It could have been that. And, and that, like, at this point, the military's trying to make good on the mistakes and laziness of their forefathers. Mm-hmm. It could be that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and they, they did try to do right by these men when they went back and they investigated the crash site. They did bring all of those remains back. They did put them into a shared gravesite at Arlington National Cemetery. They did hold a service mm-hmm. for them. So they are trying to do what they can to recognize and honor them. And not yeah. for nothing. Mm-hmm. Because I know if it were my family, I would be pissed and like need to know more. But when it comes down to it, how many people are in our military? Right now, well, or even know. then, I oh, mean, a lot, uh, back hundreds days, of thousands, of, oh, right? a couple of million back yeah. in those days. So, and we're talking about four men, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they've, and they've again, done a lot. They've done I a lot totally to understand, them. like from the family perspective. I don't want to say blah, we shouldn't blah, blah blah, but at the end of the day, it's like it's four, four people who mm-hmm. probably died because you've seen the pictures. Mm-hmm. They probably died. And, you know, at some point, I'm sure the military just kind of was like, we have so many other things going on. We cannot, like, we can't have resources going into this. We've got to go. We um, we just have to walk away from it. And then 20 years mm-hmm. later, they're, try- they're trying to make good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and this is now, this is 20 years on since that happened. Yeah, but that would be my And we've, of... you know, we've been in a whole bunch of other conflicts, so they've got a whole other yeah. slew of hot potatoes on their hands yeah. to try oh, and, yeah, yeah. Got, and deal they're, with. They're still looking at stuff like that. But oh, yeah. what's, what's, uh, what's really, it is sad, though, that people, there are, 
I've read these stories of these families of these people that have been trying for years. I mean, they still feel that the, their their loved ones are probably missing. And and I look at the story, and it seems to be glaringly obvious that there's no way in hell that they that they actually didn't die in that plane crash. And it's well, sad but, that these yeah. people have spent all this time and and kind of you know. You, let their lives be consumed by this. And you, so, then yeah. that's the difference is you don't have the emotional attachment, well, nor do I. Yeah. And so sometimes that and makes also, it easy to, to make a quick decision. And, who and knows? these people have uh, possibly been a little bit misled by, you know, some, I don't know. I'm not gonna some say parties. It. Some parties. Uh, they've been a little bit misled. Um, so it's kind of sad. But yeah, I don't all think right. I think those guys all died. I think all there's right. no doubt about it. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. Well, no, no, no. Let's go on. Mm. No, I think you <laughs> It's way too hot to keep going. Yeah. Oh, yeah, fine, fine, no. fine. All right. Well, if you want to read some of the links about this particular episode or any episode, you can find that on our website, which is thinkingsidewayspodcast.com. On there, of course, you can listen to any past episode as well as download them. Uh, there's also links for merchandise as well as our past episode list. There's an actually an entire page that's got them all in a searchable version format for you there. Um, for those of you who are downloading somewhere else, which most of you are, yep. you're downloading or streaming. If you're downloading and you're doing that from something like iTunes and you're able to leave a comment and a rating, please do. We appreciate that because that allows other people to find the show. If you're streaming through like Google Play or Stitcher or what other platform it might be, uh, if that platform allows you to do comments and ratings, please do so. We, we appreciate that. We're on social media, so we are on Twitter. We are thinking sideways without the G in the middle. Uh, we are on sub. Uh, we've got a subreddit. I was yeah. about to say we're on subreddit, nope. but we have a subreddit. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, we have the Facebook page and the Facebook group. So, oh, yeah. like Lots the page. Yep, join the group. It's always pretty busy, always good conversations taking place. Um, and if you, last but not least, if you have comments or questions or story suggestions, all of that stuff, you can always go ahead and email that to us at thinkingsidewayspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we respond to everything. Might take us a while because the inbox is, appears to be constantly full these days. Insane, but yeah. we do get back, so please be patient with us. Uh, that having been said, uh, you guys got anything else? No. Mm, no All right. Not mystery solved again. All yeah. right. Well, we will wrap this one up, and we will talk to everybody next week. All right. Toodaloo. Sky train. Good point. <laughs> <laughs>